The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He's a traditional Catholic priest from the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. How are you doing there? Doing well, Father. It's good to see you. Yeah, definitely. No, before we go any further, I'd yeah. ask people to pray for Father Chicada. Mm -hmm. Father Anthony Chicada is very, very ill. <laughs> so please keep him in your prayers. <laughs> And uh, also, we have a very fine man, a gentleman who was a teacher here at the school, actually still is, but he's had to be absent because uh, he's got a condition which is uh, life-threatening. He'll be having life-saving surgery in the course of this month, so I ask everyone to keep uh, Jonathan in their prayers as well. Yes, absolutely. So thank you for that. Yep. Alrighty. Well, Father, it's good to have you back after our uh, program last week where we had Father Skierke and Father Maraska join us. I know that, I know. that was... That Seems was... rather empty, apparently. Yeah. Oh, right. yeah. That, that was a lot of fun. I know we had a, a lot of great feedback from that. So. It's a great adventure. Yeah. They did yeah. talk about coming back on the, on the program, but yeah. one would have to come from uh, Minnesota and the other from Montana to do it. So maybe we could do a, a split screen program sometime mm -hmm. that would be yeah. that would be interesting definitely definitely i'm grateful to them for having been on the show yes by yes, the way yes. father Rasha was very much promoting the 54-day rosary novena mm -hmm. and uh, we are going to begin that here at immaculate conception on september 15th feast of our lady of sorrows and it will conclude a few days after the election but we're told to expect that the uh the balloting will not be complete. At least the, the numbers will not be available until days afterwards. And uh, we're told by the leftists that they are going to be on the attack all during that time. Mm -hmm. So heaven knows we'll need all 54 days of that Rosary Novena and more. So uh, yeah. we do ask everyone to join us. We do have the booklets also. And uh, Father Maraschka and Father Skirky have those booklets available. So they can con you can contact them and, and get copies of them. Yes. Join the 54-day Rosary Novena. Yep. Absolutely. Well, Father, if we could, I wanted to uh, get through a couple emails tonight from our inbox. Uh, this this first one, not not really a question, but just a, a rather nice email that I'd like to read through. It's from a viewer all the way in Denmark. And uh, she says that in 2001, I converted to the Catholic faith. It was a new life for me. Uh, she said she... Uh, she uh, actually attended uh, different retreats and prayer groups, etc., in the United States here, and she happened to yeah. stumble across the Society of St. Pius V um, through our What Catholics Believe programs online. She says uh, it was kind of by luck, in quotation marks, that she stumbled across our videos. Uh, she says from that she has seen all of the old programs, the Catechism series, and now the new programs as well that we've been recording for the last few years. She said that these these videos, they hold me up and I feel connected in prayer. She said that's what we have right now, being connected as the children of God, even though we do not know each other. I live in a very pagan country. Uh, I have not been able to attend Mass for a few years because there is nowhere to go, so I stay at home praying the Mass prayers daily. <coughs> And uh, she says that it is a great source of hope 
to uh, watch our programs and watch the, the Holy Mass live streams that we have. So she says, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for um, all that you do and for working so hard getting the word of God and his truth out to every corner of the world. I wish in person that I could join your Mass, uh, but please pray for me and my family in Denmark as well. We need it so much. So she says uh, in conclusion here, May God bless you all abundantly, and may his Blessed Virgin Mother and all the angels and saints protect and guide us now and forever. So how much well, is that? Well, may, may God bless her also. <laughs> That's a beautiful letter. We really appreciate that. And uh, the encouragement certainly helps. Yes. The purpose for doing the program is to be of service to souls like her. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd like to know a little bit more about the family, too. She mentioned that she converted. Mm -hmm. I wonder about her husband, about her children. Evidently, uh, she has a, a family that's still uh, first generation together. So it'd be interesting to get to know a little bit more about her and her family. Mm -hmm. But I can assure her that I'll be remembering her at the altar. So when she's watching the Mass by live stream, she'll know that I'm including her yeah. in the Masses, too. Definitely. All right, then uh, a few questions. Father, uh, in, in one of our recent programs, I believe just a couple weeks ago, we talked about the uh, idea of a plurality of wives in the Old Testament, and, and specifically with, with King David. But this, uh, one of our viewers is having, um, <clears throat> is having difficulties uh, separating the idea of a plurality of wives uh, with the sin of adultery. So why did God permit to tolerate the one, yet, yet so severely condemn the other? What is the difference between mm -hmm. the two? Well, the fathers of the church talked about this whole matter of uh, just, the just actually indulging in having, if not multiple wives, at least concubines, right? And... Uh, and st still be just. I mean, Abraham, uh, St. Paul holds him up as a paragon of faith, right? Yeah, he had a, a son by his wife, Sarah, and a son by a slave girl, Hagar, at the same time. And ordinarily, yes, that would be a, a grave sin. It would be a sin of adultery. But the fathers of the church explain, first of all, something that cannot be doubted is that in sacred scripture, divine revelation, it is presented to us as a fact that men such as Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had uh, wives, at least, you know, one principal wife, as it were, and, uh, and concubines, and they had relations with them and had children by them. And uh, yet, in sacred scripture, they are referred to as just. The fathers of the church uh, address that very question, and they answer, I think, uh, if not unanimously, there's a large plurality of them that answer that um, because of the two purposes of marriage, uh, that is to give life as the primary essential purpose, to give life. And the secondary, essential, but still secondary purpose, and that is the mutual fidelity of one man and one woman to each other, that God could derogate from the secondary purpose for the sake of the primary purpose, and that he did exactly that after the flood to repopulate the world. He allowed that. He tolerated that to take place. And um, so um, and it, is, it is God's purpose, and it's his law, and he can do that if he so wishes. 
But we do know for, from divine revelation that God did allow that to be done. Uh, he permitted that to be done. And uh, that those who did it were still just, and the church recognizes them as having been holy souls. Even our Lord, our Lord talks about Abraham seeing him, Jesus Christ, the Savior, come into the world. He rejoiced to see my day. Abraham was somewhere, even though he'd been dead for 1,800 years at that time, um, Abraham was somewhere where he was given to know that the Christ had come into the world as a descendant of his own through David, through King David. And uh, that gave him great joy because there his faith was in that Redeemer. And so uh, the fact is that we know that he was a just man, held up as a man who was justified by faith, uh, because in the Old Testament, it is a fact. He was justified by, by faith, as St. Paul says. And uh, that's not true in the New Testament. That's what Luther would have us believe. Mm-hmm. Um, in a sense, uh, negating the New Testament and taking us back to the Old, oddly enough, even though he kept insisting we're not under the law, he would make it sound as though we were justified by faith. But Abraham was in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And so he saved his soul, even though this is true of him. God simply uh, arranged, declared such, he, he, he arranged it such, he judged it such for the sake of bringing human life and repopulating the earth. Okay. Father, our viewer, though, she, um, she, she, at least implicitly asked this question, that what if Abraham and others like him were justified in spite of, of this? Rather, um, you know, they, that they did this thing, but that it was actually an evil and that they had to repent of this before they were justified, before they became just. Well, she's reading something into Scripture that is not there. It's not stated as such. You know? Okay. So she's kind of reading that into it. Mm-hmm. But um, it is nowhere suggested in Scripture that Abraham was sinning by doing this. Now, there were other instances when Abraham did, in fact, uh, weaken, as it were. I mean, once he and Sarah uh, were in Egypt, and he was afraid, uh, I think it was in Egypt, and and he was afraid that uh, the prince there uh, would find Sarah very attractive, and if he knew that Abraham was her husband, he would kill Abraham for the sake of taking Sarah away from him. So uh, Abraham instructed Sarah to say that she was his sister, and therefore, you know, not attached and free. And so Abraham did have his his weaknesses. He had his faults, and like David after him, he had his sins, you know. But nowhere is it suggested that uh, that I know of in sacred scripture, either in the Old Testament or in St. Paul's writings when he talks about this in the New, that Abraham was uh, actually committing sin, knowingly, willingly committing sin by having a child by the slave girl, Hagar. Mm-hmm. Again, um, you know, you... You see, Islam today is a, is a throwback to the Old Testament, as though they never got beyond that and never got into a New Testament. And so they believe that you can do these things still, right? But Jesus Christ, our Lord, said no more. And that was the end of that 
from that moment on, God spoke, saying, okay, that period of time is over, that God tolerated this, he will not tolerate it any longer. Those of us who recognize Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Savior, recognize his divine authority, greater than that of Moses, greater than that of Abraham, to say, it was not this way in the beginning, and it's not going to be this way anymore. Right? So, um, <clears throat> but those who, uh, who did this in the Old Testament, nowhere is it suggested that they were, uh, that I know of in the, New in the Old Testament, that they were actually consciously, willingly, deliberately sinning against God by doing this. It was their understanding of what was God's will at the time. Right. Okay. <clears throat> then uh, changing gears here a little bit. Father, uh, we have a viewer who asks, what happened with the Byzantines um, that you say that they had their own Vatican II? We've um, he just quoted you from, from saying that in, in previous videos, that the Byzantine Church had their own Vatican II. So he asks, did they change their liturgy at all? Uh, he says, I know they omit the filioque clause, but are there any other changes to their liturgy or, or even to their faith at all? Mm -hmm. Well, I get the impression that people are listening there, <laughs> actually listening to what is being said, and I appreciate that. When I said that uh, the Eastern Rites had their Vatican II, um, I, I don't mean in the literal sense that they called a Vatican II for the Eastern Rites and went through the same process of uh, modernist modernizing of their religion. But in the aftermath of Vatican II, they did definitely uh, diverge from their traditions, um, bringing in translations. And now if you go to a, uh, a, uh, an Eastern Rite ceremony, uh, it, it, it might be half in English. might even be more, more than that in English. You know? They're, in a sense, losing that connection with the old country, as it were, with the old language. <laughs> And that is uh, a, a portal through which a lot of changes come in. Yes, the filioque, they, uh, they've, I understand, largely abandoned the filioque, which was uh, actually added to the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed to say that the Father and the Son breathe forth the Holy Ghost, or the Holy Ghost proceeds from the Father and the Son. Because until then, the creed said that the Father, that the Holy Ghost proceeds from the Father. Um, now, they like to say that the Holy Ghost proceeds from the Father through the Son. Certain ones have come up with that formula. But here, we understand in the Catholic Church that the Holy Ghost proceeds from the Father and the Son as a common principle, as it were. Um, the love between the Father and the Son breathes forth the Spirit, the Holy Ghost. That's our understanding, and it is a matter of our faith. But the Orthodox right, refuse to accept that, and to a great extent, the Eastern Rite Catholic, the Uniate Rites, like we're talking about the Byzantine and so on, that they have repudiated that also. Uh, not all, but there are those who do, and they resemble more the Orthodox in that in their belief, certainly, than the Catholic belief. But, I mean, even when I was studying in Rome, way back when, um, back in the 1970s, uh, in the early 70s, um, we, we found, as we went around Rome, there were the 
the, the larger uh, Byzantine churches, the Ukrainian Rite churches and so on, we, we found that they were following the, a more modern calendar. They weren't following the traditional calendar. Uh, we had to go to a, a small, very old uh, Byzantine priest in a very small, very old Byzantine church. Uh, I think it was the it was the Piazza dei Monti. I think it was. Uh, trying to remember now, to actually find a a bona fide old fashioned, as it were, a traditional uh, Byzantine liturgy, because there had been modernizations that had come in, and I, I understand here in Cincinnati also. I mean, there are Eastern rites being said, but they're again very kind of modernized, novosorduized. Um, in the vernacular, and therefore, um, they, they don't really even have the the atmosphere of the traditional ceremony. Um, whether they've changed their doctrines, that I don't know. Uh, except for the filioque question, uh, I, I have not encountered that. But I, I know in matters of, of style, certainly, outward appearance, and even the way the liturgy is conducted, there has been a certain modernization that has gone in. Mm -hmm. Okay. So. Then uh, next email, Father, <clears throat> from a viewer who asked what we should make of the late Father Malachi Martin. He said he is an enigma to me. Aside from his reputation as an experienced exorcist, I have heard him described as a very holy man, but also as a Don Juan and a Zionist double agent inside yeah. the Vatican. Uh, what are your thoughts, Father? On I would say enigma is a good word. <laughs> enigma is a good word. Um, I had never really given it much thought. I had not read any of his novels. And um, had no interest in doing so. All of a sudden, uh, a young convert, a gentleman convert, uh, came to me with a letter from Malachi Martin. It seems that this convert had written to Malachi Martin and said to him uh, that he would be very interested in joining him for a an exorcism ceremony. And I thought, well, that is very brash. I thought, I wish you'd consulted me before <laughs> writing a letter like that. Uh, but the young man came to me and showed me Malachi Martin's response. And I thought the response was very good. As Malachi Martin wrote to him and said in no uncertain terms, you definitely do not want to take a part in such a ceremony. He said it is not a place anyone would want to be. Mm -hmm. In fact, Malachi Martin described it at one point in another interview somewhere that the most disturbing thing about an exorcism is you're brought, you're confronted by, by a, 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 a mentality, a mind that absolutely hates you. It is filled with malice and hatred towards you. He says that's that's very unnerving to counter that. That sounds very accurate, you know. And um, so I, I was impressed by his letter. the The letter was a few paragraphs, and every sentence of it I thought was right on, on the mark. <clears throat> and uh, so I told uh, this young man, well, well, the letter that Malachi Martin wrote, told the young fellow that he was ever in New York, he should come by and see him. So I told uh, our young convert, well, you know, I'm going to be in New York sometime soon. And uh, it just so happened that the convert was going to be up there, too, at that time. So I said, well, let's get together and go and visit, visit Malachi Martin, because now I'm kind of 
interested and curious about it. So we, uh, we arrived at the hotel where he was staying, actually. He, I think he was uh, an ex-clustrated uh, Jesuit, if I'm not mistaken. So um, down in the lobby comes a man in a gray suit, business suit, tie, coat and tie. And he greets us rather warmly. You can tell there's plenty of Irish <laughs> in him. And uh, <clears throat> he tells us that he's actually on a mission. There's a contingent of people from Canada who are main, uh, maintaining a pro-life effort, uh, uh, like an NGO, non-governmental organization with the United Nations. And so they had just a- obtained an office space <clears throat> In a building near the United Nations, the office space had been previously occupied by Planned Parenthood. And so this pro-life group from Canada wanted Malachi Martin to go to the office, <coughs> to the space, and exercise it. And so uh, Malachi Martin told us he was on his way there, and uh, would we come along? And we went along. And... Uh, when there, he, he donned his clericals and uh, the purple stole and uh, proceeded to exercise the rooms of this uh, office space using a, an atomizer, like a spray bottle <coughs> full of holy water. Okay. And I thought, well, that would be very effective, <laughs> I guess. It certainly gave him plenty, mm-hmm. good quantity of holy water, and he didn't, he didn't uh, spare any of it. And he went around praying the Latin prayers everywhere throughout, you know, exorcism. So I thought, well, okay, this sounds like something that a traditional priest would do. We went to lunch afterwards, and uh, it turns out my young convert friend sat across the table from Malachi Martin and was sort of lecturing him on, on the state of the church, affairs of the church. And Malachi Martin was just kind of listening intently, humbly, quietly listening to that. So, um, anyway, I thought that indicated a certain amount of humility and perseverance, too. <laughs> but he, he obviously liked our young convert very much and was impressed by his ardor. <laughs> so that was the only experience I had in actually, actually meeting Malachi Martin. Mm-hmm. And I would say overall it was a, it was a positive, it left me a positive impression of him. <clears throat> but then there are many other things, too, that are that are troubling. I mean, I've heard the same things that this our writer has heard, about being attached to uh, Zionist uh, sources. And, uh, and uh, one thing that uh, puzzled me greatly was something that I heard from New York, uh, that Malachi Martin was involved in the... Uh, quote-unquote, consecration of one of the Took bishops. And the the Took bishop who was doing the consecrating, this was in a private home in New York, <clears throat> somehow really <clears throat> garbled the forum. And uh, so there was real concern whether or not it was valid. Now, the story that I heard from s- someone present, uh, someone who I consider very credible, was that Malachi Martin took the people involved into the next room and told them a a, a peculiar story and said that he had the power to remedy the consecration and that he actually did go through the motions of 
repeating the form and, you know, to, to make sure, well, for those concerned, that the consecration was valid. Of course, you and I know that there are prophets with these two consecrations. <laughs> but the story that he told, as it was related to me, <clears throat> was that back in the time of Popeyes Twelfth, when Malachi Martin was working in the Vatican, he and 11 other priests were summoned to the Vatican by Popeyes XII. This would have been during World War II. And Popeyes XII told them, story goes, that he, Popeyes XII, was afraid that the Vatican was going to fall to the Nazis. The Nazis were going to actually storm the Vatican and take it. And Pius XII did not know what was going to become of him. And so to assure the continuance of the church, he, Pius XII, had decided to consecrate all 12 of them bishops on the spot, one of them being Malachi Martin. So Malachi Martin supposedly told the story to these people who were gathered there for this took consecration, which they doubted, and that therefore he had been a clandestine bishop all those years and could actually rectify it. Now, this sounds, from beginning to end, extremely far-fetched, but the entire took story is far-fetched. So, um, and yet we know uh, mm, truth is stranger than fiction sometimes. <laughs> so I, I really just don't know what to make of this. And then later when Malachi Martin was found dead, that he'd fallen, they say, hit his head on the corner of a, of a stone tabletop and, and, uh, and died, it, it did raise a lot of suspicions. What Malachi Martin wrote in his books, too, is also very striking and very startling. In the, um, well, I mean, by having met him in that brief, uh, for that brief time in New York, um, gave me a certain curiosity, so I picked up a copy of his book, uh, Keys of This Blood, and began reading it through. And it's a long book, 700 pages, I think. And, and uh, I was particularly interested in what he had to say in the book about uh, Fatima, mm -hmm. Paul VI, and so on. Uh, he, he actually, as I recall, he, he brings out the point of the book that he, he finds it necessary to accept as a, almost like a, a given, but a hypothesis also, that the post-Vatican II popes are valid because if they're not, then it, we're lost. That, 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 that he doesn't know how we can, we can go forward. I think he made a statement like that in the book, and I thought at the time, well, it seems strange to say, well, you know, we, well, let's, let's assume that, that they must be valid because if they're not, it's really a bad situation. <laughs> it's really a bad problem we're in. But we're in a bad problem now, assuming that there is no problem with that. So, but anyway, I mean, I didn't argue the point with him. I was reading the book, see, so <laughs> anyway. <clears throat> but um, but he, he got to page, oh, uh, 630, 631, 632, and he's addressing what happened to the Vatican when Paul VI was elected. And here he's not talking novel. Here he's talking <clears throat> as though it's a matter of history. And he says in the book, I'd say about page 632 or so, that when Paul VI was, was elected, he encountered in the Vatican an irremovable, malignant, or malign power. It was irremovable, though. You could not get it out. He said, 
Paul VI encountered this, and it was a power that was associated with Masonic activity all the way back to the 33rd parallel, Scottish Rite Masonry here in the United States, uh, in the Carolinas, right? And um, he mentions this in the book, as I recall, you know, and talks about how it was, it thrived on pedophilia in the Vatican. He, he says it outright, that this is what that they were involved in, in the Vatican, this child abuse, the immoral child abuse. And it occurred to me at the time, this book has been out on the stand for years. It sold over a million copies. It says this, and I'd never heard about this, and I don't know that anybody, I mean, you don't hear about a reaction. You'd think if somebody is making a claim like this, and somebody's making a claim like this in a book that has sold a million copies, mm. you'd think this would have drawn some attention. You'd think it would have attracted some headlines. <clears throat> there was nothing. I think the book was published back in the 1980s. And I, I, I was just shocked to say, why, why is this not shocking to so many people that this is not uh, you know, universally known that he's made this claim here? But then he goes on to talk about his idea of Fatima and the promise of Fatima and the threats of Fatima, right? If the promises are, are if Our Lady's requests are met, you know, forestalling of the evils, and if they're not met, what will happen? Mm -hmm. He described the events surrounding Fatima and the aftermath as a giant wheel, almost that is turning. And I think he uh, even said in there that he thought that we had gone pa past the point of forestalling the evils, and now it was a matter of enduring them and being faithful to God throughout them. Now, there are those who have copies of this book, The Keys of This Blood, in their possession. They can read in the page uh, three, 630s, and they can see if I'm wrong. And if, they are, if I am, I hope they, they actually uh, let us know. But I would think that any red-blooded Catholic <laughs> uh, today, traditional Catholic, would find what he wrote there to be rather startling. Mm -hmm and uh, would be more than curious about it. Um, I know I, I was quite taken aback by what I read there. Uh, again, I don't know what credence to give to it. I do believe that these evil things were going on and were going on in the Vatican during Paul VI's tenure. Mm -hmm. And I do believe that they're continuing to this day. But as far as the specifics that he mentions there, I, I don't, uh, I don't know. What, what about his writings? Would you recommend traditional Catholics read them? I just don't know. I don't know. I mean, the novels. I understand the novels that he writes are actually like docudramas, in which he's actually portraying historical events in veiled terms, that yeah. people who read the books understand and they get an understanding of what's happened in the church and in the Vatican, what's happened in the hierarchy. And it, it, that actually helps them to gain a certain grasp of the gravity of the problem, the nature of the problem, maybe even partly the solution to the problem. <laughs> There's no doubt from what I read in the Keys of This Blood that he believes in the prophecies of Fatima, the promises and the threats, as it were, of Fatima, that he was very convinced that it was true and that we were wit witnessing the results of those apparitions and what our lady told us and our activity or inactivity 
in meeting her requests. Is it true that he saw the third secret of Fatima? He claims to have seen the third secret of Fatima. Yes, he did. He said, I believe that a cardinal uh, had, had viewed it, and the cardinal was rather stupefied by it, and in his stupefaction actually let Malachi Martin take a look at it. Hmm. Or perhaps stated it. I don't know if he actually showed it to him or just told him what it said. But either way, uh, Malachi Martin claimed to be privy to the, the third, third secret of Fatima. Do you think that would give more credence to his, uh, to, to his remarks on Fatima, if he actually saw the third secret? Possibly so, yeah, if, if true. You know, I, I mean, I have no way of verifying these things. Yeah. And yeah. As, as our writer says there, there's so many different stories about, you know, <laughs> whose side he was really on. I mean, he was... He was writing the new, uh, working on the new Psalter, the, the new Latin translation of Psalter with Cardinal Bea. And Cardinal Bea, you know, was no Catholic traditionalist, that's for sure. No friend of tra traditional Catholicism. He was one of the change agents. And Malachi Martin was an assistant to, to him. By the way, Malachi Martin was not actually a <clears throat> first-line exorcist. He assisted others in exorcisms. Uh, he, he actually made that clear. <clears throat> that he, I, I think it was in the letter that he wrote to that uh, convert, even, that, that he did not undertake exorcisms on his own. He was there to assist another Catholic clergyman in the exorcism. As I recall, that is true. Hmm. So, um, in any case, I... Uh, I, I just honestly find him to be an enigma, yeah. even as our writer says. Okay. Um, the connections that are attributed to him, I, you know, I, I don't even I, I don't even know enough to, to deny them. Yeah. Um, but if those connections are real, then I would have to wonder. You know, well, it, it just caused me caused me to wonder. Uh, what he was really all about, and uh, whether he was conflicted, uh, perhaps in the end, you know, uh, at different points in his life as to which way he wanted to go. I just don't know. Mm -hmm. I, I heard that in the end, and again, you know, this is just, there's so much lore about him. That's the thing. <laughs> there's so much lore and legend about him, the, yeah. the stories people tell about him. Um, <clears throat> that he actually would travel around on Sundays in New York and offer the traditional Mass in, for small private groups in various places around Manhattan. I never heard him say this, though. I just heard this from some lay people who knew him. Mm -hmm. So, again, it's a real mystery. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. <clears throat> All right. Uh, well, perhaps this can be our last email, Father. We have a viewer who says that uh, I've got some nieces that are in trouble because they've had the liberal drum beat into their heads for a good portion of their life, and college only made it worse. They are under the opinion that President Trump is the great Satan. So much of this is due to their environment and what they read. <clears throat> she says, I'm just, I am just wondering, how can I help in this situation? I've been praying for them, but do you have any practical recommendations, such as um, writings that they could read or anything else to help someone in this situation? <laughs> Well, unfortunately, by the time they get to that point, they've been through so-called Catholic high schools, probably, I imagine, where they're indoctrinated, right, with modernism and socialism, 
and radicalism, the social gospel. I'm assuming that. <laughs> because she says that college has just made it worse. So the problem is already there. But they go to college, and uh, so many of these Marxist, socialist, radical, progressive uh, leftists are there precisely in order to indoctrinate the kids. They are there to indoctrinate young adults. That's what we're witnessing exploding on our streets now. The, the, the years of college education here in America have created radical leftist uh, rioters and, uh, and who are determined to violently bring down the United States of America. <clears throat> now, once they've gone through these radical schools, and they've gone through, and I, I'm talking about the, the modernist Catholic schools. <clears throat> Once they've gone through the college professors and they've taken in all of the venom that, that these and professors inject into their minds and hearts against the United States of America, even against God himself, against our Lord, it's awfully hard to dispossess them. It's almost like having to do an exorcism. Almost like having to do an exorcism. Uh, and I'm not saying they're possessed physically, but uh, Satan has a certain power over their minds, their imaginations, their their hearts. He has a certain power over them, a certain amount of control. So it's it's awfully hard to dispossess them because it's not really a matter of rational argument anymore. Right. It's their feelings, their feelings. It, it it is turned into an actual hardened hatred, and it's awfully hard to get past that to where they can even hear any rational argument. They, they even look upon your attempt to, uh, to uh, reason with them as an attack, an atrocity, proof that you are, you know, a bourgeoisie uh, enemy of the people and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So you're a racist. You're using reason. Try to reason with them and have a rational discussion with them. Reason is racist. Yeah. Right? Arithmetic, that's racist, right? <laughs> Everything is racist. Grammar is racist. Everything is racist, see? Yeah. That's, that's the new mantra. So it's awfully hard to get through. You, you'd, have to, you'd have to go to the power of prayer. There are leftists who have come over. There are those who are in the radical left <clears throat> who have left the left, so to speak, okay? And really, when you read their stories, you find it, it, it has, it's the grace of God that they just woke up one day as though from a nightmare. And they suddenly they saw things that they never, they'd seen things, but they never actually saw the significance of them. And all of a sudden, it hit them. I mean, Bella Dodd is a good example of that. Here's Bella Dodd. I mean, she's an Italian woman, okay? And uh, she grows up <laughs> losing her faith, joins the communists. It's, it's the social gospel that got her, like the idea of the inequities and the injustices, you know, the, uh, the ruling class against the poor, working uh, proletariat. And she became a lawyer, came to this country. Uh, she actually became a, a, an actual card-carrying member of the Communist Party and actually a director of the Communist Party. She became part of the legal wing of the Communist Party. And uh, working with, especially with the trade unions, or with the, with the labor unions, I'm sorry. And uh, what opened her eyes <coughs> was her attendance at meetings. <coughs> I mean, she was there when Earl Browder was there, and others pontificating over the Communist Party meetings here in the States. And she, she just began to realize 
<laughs> that the Communist Party USA was directly um, managed by, actually dictated to by the Soviet Union, by, by Moscow, by Stalin. If the Communist Party of the Soviet Union was actually uh, controlling the Communist Party in the States and dictated everything it could say and do. And she saw there had no interest whatsoever in the welfare of the common man. They were simply using that as a battering ram to destroy American society. <clears throat> it came crashing down, the realization came crashing down on her. And she felt so betrayed. <clears throat> but she had bought the big lie. I mean, she had, as they say, drank the Kool-Aid. And now she, she saw that it was poison. And um, as, as she went on uh, trying to <coughs> battle in her own way internally within the Communist Party here, to try to bring them back to what she thought was their, their roots of uh, being concerned about the, the, the working man, the proletariat, she kept running into this, this iron wall, as it were, that, and she realized that she was quite alone in this and singled out. As a matter of fact, she was even summoned by a council of three, I think, three young communist apparatchiks in, the, in, in, in New York who were reviewing her problems. And she said, these were kids. I mean, here she's twice their age. They're like in their 20s. They have been established now as the sort of uh, judgment wing for any of the members of the party or, who are getting out of line. And so she realized, so this is the future. This is they're bringing in these young kids who really don't know. They're still on fire with the communist propaganda. They haven't yet seen the reality. They're the ones now who are going to be judging the older ones who have who've come to see the lies of the Communist Party. She wound up contacting Bishop Sheen. And she met with him, and she relearned her faith, and she rekindled her faith, and she became very fervent in her faith. <clears throat> in fact, uh, Bishop Mendez, uh, Bishop uh, Mendez had a secretary named Natalie White, and Natalie was a friend of Belladon's. Got to know her fairly well. And it was with Belladon's approval that Bishop Mendez and Natalie White started uh, an organization to assist the church behind the Iron Curtain. Um, Bishop Mendez passed, has passed away, God rest his soul. Not before ordaining Father Greenwell and Father Bomberger, who just celebrated the 30th anniversary, that's what brought Father Marachka and Father Skirki on the program. They were all here for that celebration. But, uh, but also uh, consecrated Bishop Kelly a bishop. Bishop Mendez did that before he passed away. And, uh, but Natalie White uh, was a, a, a personal friend of Belladon. She knew her. And remember, that, now this is the woman, Belladon, who, who herself said that she had personal knowledge of the fact that it, she testified before the House Committee on Un-American Activities, the United States government, that she had personal knowledge that 1,100 men were sent into the, into the 
into the ministry, like the priesthood, the seminaries, who are communist agents. During her time as a communist, 1,100 communist infiltrators into the clergy. And you know what? They were being promoted. So what does that tell you? How does that help explain what has happened to the church, not only throughout the world, but in this country we're dealing with here? Well, she gave that testimony under oath, and uh, she's very credible. So uh, in in any case, um, when this writer sends this word in that her nieces, I guess, Mm -hmm. have uh, fallen into this, uh, it really does take a grace to let the scales fall from the eyes and let them see and understand what's before them. So she's going to have to continue to help them and uh, by giving them information, no doubt about it, she's going to have to pray for them, pray the rosary for them, try to get them to pray themselves, even in spite of themselves, if necessary. But also... She might be on the lookout for those who were rabid radical leftists who now have seen the light and come over, you know. There are some excellent conservative writers in our country now who know these these present conservatives who had who who left who escaped from the leftist mindset and who could actually get her involved there and if if her if her nieces could read some of their writings, mm-hmm. detailing the process that they went through to enable them to see that, find their way out of the darkness into the light, that probably would be very helpful. It would be really a challenge. I know that there were communists in Bella Dodd's time who wrote about their conversion and coming out of that leftist, radical, uh, revolutionary mindset. And... Uh, in fact, I have, I have a volume uh, right now that I could probably recommend to her. So uh, if we can, you know, send some information okay. to her, I think I could uh, give her a little bit of direction okay. as to what she could read to help her, her nieces, but what she could also encourage them to read that would help them too. Okay. They need to pick up the, especially the, the Gospels and read them, though. <laughs> right? They'll find... <laughs> You know, not 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 the social gospel, but the true gospel uh, that recognizes the true dignity of man, and it's not to be found in labor; it's to be found in service of God. Mm-hmm. You know, hopefully, that's what they will discover in the gospels. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we can end with that, Father. We got through a lot tonight, so thank you. Appreciate it. Oh, appreciate um, thank you very much, yeah. and I thank our, our listeners for their yeah. devotion, their patience, their support, and prayers. We need them absolutely. Thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.